Okay, so I'm Dave Lowe, and that was Holly Jazz Lowe, and uh, you are listening to the Sing World Podcast. What's up, y'all? It's the Scene World Podcast. I'm AJ. Jörg is over there. How's it going? Was that an alien language? Did I make make up noises? (laughs) What did you say? I just said, sup, y'all. Sup, y'all? Yeah, what's up, (laughs) y'all? Oh, okay. Trying to hang with the young folk. Oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) It, Embarrassing. <laughs> the same guys that say SNES. <laughs> uh, In a minute, we're going to be talking to the Rob Hubbard, the Doctor, Doctor the Rob Hubbard. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, so this is so so. Jörg, we need to we need to make sure this is good because this is the one that everyone's going to be listening to. So <laughs> it's like it's like the one with Jens Schönfeld and the one we did with the Commodore guys. Everybody was listening to it. Mm-hmm. Or or Richard Löwenstein, you know. Yes. Where the Amiga News was actually making a big article about it. So guess that will be our next big one so, here. And so make um, sure that our voices are extra sultry. Hey baby. Oh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure we we can cope <laughs> with the phone line to your cape pretty well. Yes, yes. Yes, we'll be talking to, to Rob on the phone, actually, because that was the easiest way to do it. So that's that's in a little bit. Uh, there's some news first. Um, a lot well, of news. It yeah. happened in the last two days, actually. Yeah, yeah. Number one here, I've got... Um, actually received an email, so did Jörg, about the FPGA SID, which I think that we have talked about, oh, 11 or 12 times in the past two months, um, because it was set to release or to begin shipping uh, early 2018, although there wasn't really any concrete uh, numbers as to when that is. Um, but they just sent out an email this morning uh, saying that, they're having a little bit of trouble with the manufacturer and uh, they're not, the manufacturer isn't very responsive. So there's no clear production schedule, but um, it's unlikely to be before the end of March. It's actually pretty interesting because it's the first time that you had to pre-order um, uh, definite. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because the terms of service when you pre-order say like you can't, Undo your pre-order, but, uh, but I wonder that, how they would work that out. Like, you know, if what if you pre-ordered and then it came around time and you decided I don't want one after all? There's there's nothing they can yeah. do to you. They, they can't yeah. they can't squeeze the money out of you. Uh, if if you paid in advance, that's one thing. But no one no one paid in advance. You just you you basically mentioned that you you wanted to that you were interested and you wanted to be updated and that you would like to get one. But but no no transaction has been done i believe i'm i'm pretty much the only one reading all that stuff anyway but yeah. but i did yeah hmm. i don't know did you read it yeah or did you just pre-order or did you not well, actually no read? yeah no i pretty much just just pre-ordered i didn't i didn't bother reading it i don't know you see that's but the thing no <laughs> one reads the fine print <laughs> well Jörg does oh yeah. yeah so so that's that uh that, that's one bit yeah. um Actually, it's it's a pretty much an advance 
for the ultimate swinzit because I would I was actually talking to mate uh, today and the ultimate swinzit is about to be um, restocked in two weeks. Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. And at least last time the price was 30 euros plus five, five euros shipping. Insured. Which is not, which is not is, bad. Yeah. You know, compared it's, to what um, a, a used SID goes for, which is, you know, 50, 60 bucks, depending yeah. on the model and, you know, all that nonsense. Yeah. I know. Well, that's actually true. Yes. And um, so, as you know, people, I was actually pretty much impressed with the possibilities this ultimate spin that is giving. And, you know, um, I still think it sounds pretty close to the 8.580, but um, also the 6.581 is sounding pretty good. It's actually very close to the filters and char characteristics of the um, of the SIT. Well, you know, um, for most casual... Advanced resonance are... Advanced resonance... Revision four. Yeah, I've got one of those. Which is like the most famous yeah. Re revision. Yeah. yeah. For, you know, for most casual users, I would think that it would be more than, more than adequate. You know, it's it's, for for pedants that really want that that exact sound. Then you know, I guess you want you want a SID, but even even within the SID, there's so much variation from one chip to the next that it's not a matter of you can say this is what a SID chip is supposed to sound like because they all sound a little bit different. So I, I mean, I think that the Swin SID is probably within the tolerances for what a regular SID would sound like because I'm sure that not the Swin SID, the ultimate, the ultimate Swin SID, it's a yeah. totally different different thing. Well, yeah, so the ultimate Swin SID is within tolerances for what a regular. SID would, would, you know, what you might get from one of those, depending on, you know, the year it was made and, you know, the, where, yeah. where, where Jupiter is positioned in the constellation of Orion and, you know, it, 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 it varies from day to day. And this is what the FPCGA SID actually wants to improve right. and be better. Yes. So we are very surprised and yeah. very much looking forward to that mm -hmm. if they are keeping promises because the audio samples... From the FPGA set, actually didn't were, use any filters. Right, I don't think they did. Yeah. No, but they uh, sounded good. So, they sounded good. Yeah. And from what I, I gather, you. the filters work. Yeah. I don't. I don't. I haven't heard any. But yeah, I yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the thing. That's the thing. We they are will still eventually. missing. They are still missing um, the thing. Hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's another good question. Can you return it if you don't like the way it sounds? If they are not keeping the promises. Mm. Well. Hmm. Yeah. Um. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. So, people, people like us will have enough sources for uh, sit replacements. Yeah. I actually have um, an Aldi C64 with an an ultimate, uh, no, a normal Swinzit, you know, right. but a copycat Swinzit. Um. I thought that but, was a copycat. It was like a weird knockoff because no one had seen. Like it was a third party. It wasn't wasn't made by the guy that invented the Swinsid. Yeah, which is actually Swinkles, a Polish guy, if I'm not mistaken. Um, anyway, I didn't listen to it yet because the computer is yet broken. But <laughs> I'm working on that. I'm working on that. Yeah. 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 Um, Speaking of broken right. computers, the 
the the the ZX Vega Plus is a thing that um <laughs> this has been ongoing nonsense from the the Vega Plus campaign for the better part of a year now, I guess, or actually more than a year. Um in which people I you know, getting into the whole thing, I I don't even wanna go into the whole background of it. We've we've Please do. Oh, well, they they were going to make a reproduction of the ZX Vega and didn't. And from what I gather, um there's there's um yeah, there there's there's a guy George Cropper. Uh he does he's got a retro shop, uh bumfungaming.com. That's b u m f u n gaming.com. Um he's got a lot of YouTube videos where he goes into the details of the ZX Vega Plus and all its nonsense. And because the ZX Vega isn't really our scope, being more of a Commodore thing, um, I'm not going to go too deep into it. But essentially, people contributed to this Kickstarter, and the idea was to get this thing made, and the funds were apparently used for things that had nothing to do with the machine, nothing to do with development, and nothing has been made. It's 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 vaporware. And... Um, it was actually Indiegogo. Indiegogo. Not Kickstarter. Okay. Yeah. Well, whatever. Well, that that makes it even worse, actually, because in, with Kickstarter, they would have had to give it back. You know, they, unless if they, if they didn't get their funding, they they couldn't have gotten the money. Indiegogo, it's like at whatever you get, you get. Um, if you decide for flexible funding, right, yeah. Right. So, um, one of the backers has filed a claim against Retro Computers Limited, who was doing the ZX Vega Plus. Um, and the court ruled in his favor, uh, saying that the that RCL, Retro Computers, had formed a direct contract of sale with him and that he had paid them for delivery of one of the first models that was made and that wasn't delivered. So... Um, they ended up. The judgment was filed was entered against RCL for five hundred and eighty four pounds. So that was the that was made up of the initial price of eighty five pounds for the Vega Plus, the postage for it, uh, and then travel costs and plus and earnings losses for uh, Morton, the uh, the the dude that that filed a suit against them. As well as his witnesses, Paul Andrews and Darren Melbourne, who we've we've spoken to in the past. Who is the DTV and C sixty four mini creator? Right. right. So, um, that does not bode well for RCL in the future because, as from what I can gather by by looking at the community, a lot of people are pissed off about this, about the fact that they you know they they pledged money and nothing has been nothing's been done. There's no, there, there's there's absolutely nothing there. There's no there's no prototypes. There's no there's nothing. So, wow. so yeah, good for good for them for fighting back and uh, actually winning the case. Yeah, yeah. And, and along the lines of controversy, there's some other controversy happening over in Twin Galaxies. Oh yeah! Oh my god! Oh my God! Yes. So the thing was that the main editor of uh, Twin Galaxies editorial team actually, on his private um, uh, 
Facebook page. She was asking like, um, do you know anybody, anything about Activision's archives, you know, of video game high scores and stuff? And, um, and I was like, yes, well, I know David Crane. Can put you together with him. Oh, so this but, is your fault. <laughs> yeah, all is my fault. Yeah, so so I had no idea what this is actually would be used for, but I put them in touch, and then, um, well, then the article happened, in which um, it was actually separated from the editorial team. That since last year, you're actually allowed to um, to actually go against submitted high scores before last year, before 2007, this wasn't even a thing. But since last year, you actually can say, um, this is fake. This high score was technically not possible. So, and this all happened to Todd Rogers and his Trackster score that people said, this is not humanly possible, you know? And then they asked um, the creator of the game and co-founder of Activision, David Crane, about it. And then actually they, it was found out that Activision didn't keep any of the records people mm-hmm. sent in. They were tossed away after two weeks. Yeah. You know? So, um, But of course, um, David Crane himself said he thinks it's possible, but then they made some, um, some computer-assisted um, research um, primarily, it was Ben Heck who actually did right. the technical stuff. And you know, Ben, ben Heck right, is yeah. pretty much known for his um, hacked NES. Yeah. That is what he is known for the of the most part, you know. And um, so the whole picture came up and they decided that all his Activision scores are actually fake. Oh. And then they totally erased all his scores from the high score tables and banned him from the whole community website. So, Mr. Activision, um, Todd Rogers, is actually out of the game after exactly 35 years of holding the score. Yikes. Yep. Yep. Yes. And it was actually found out that um, the guy who was actually, um, well, you know, witnessing the scores is actually a child abuser (sighs) guy that actually is in prison right now. Oh, great. Fantastic. This is just getting better. They are called, you know, Twin Galaxies referees. Yeah. So it was all... Well, wah, fake. Wah. Yeah. Great. And then, and then, you know, we from Scene World, we spoke a lot to, um, and you actually met personally Billy Mitchell. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. this case, this other case happened that somebody said uh, Donkey Kong, his high score actually was emulate. Uh, it was actually used on emulators. And it was also manipulated. While he claimed it was on real hardware hmm. and not manipulated. Oh boy. So right now this whole now, thing is 
Yeah, pretty much. Okay, so now, now um, Todd Rogers, who's been in this for a long time, apparently, um, are all of his scores then fake? Yep. Okay, but now Billy Mitchell, um, the most recent ones they're saying might be, but he yep, would still hold the record in the past. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Though they they only removed the uh, latest record, but they kept the other ones. Yeah. But that's got to be that's got to be painful for Billy Mitchell because this is a guy who is you, you get the when you meet him, you get the impression that this is a man that is good at a video game. And two that, games actually. Yeah, two, Pac-Man two, he's, and He's good at two video games and that pretty much sums up the entirety of his personality. You know, so I mean, and and you get older, and you're not as fast as you used to be when you're, you know, playing games. It's a lot of it is twitch reflexes, and you 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 can suffer as you get older because you're not as fast as you were when you were a kid. Depends. Hank Sheehan, for example, who is the actually currently holder of the um, Donkey Kong high score. Right. He's also in the middle of his 40s. And Billy Mitchell is also... in his 40s. Yeah, right. He's, He's older, older than, than yeah. Hank Sheehan. Uh, right. 40s, that's still that's still in your prime, I said, looking Actually, forward to 40. you know, I was doing an interview <laughs> with um, who was the inventor, of, uh, the founder of Atari again. Oh, uh, Nolan Bushnell. Nolan Bushnell, yeah, and he said he said that your reflexes end at the end of the twenties. Hmm. So I'm already too old compared uh, to other people. Uh. Oh, well, you know, but again, it's it's. You see, someone that is you know like like a Billy Mitchell or or. Todd Rogers. Ah, well, I mean, if all of Todd Rogers' scores were bogus, then then we couldn't even, you know, bring him into this anymore. But someone like Billy Mitchell was really, really... He, he had a very high level of play. So even now, his level of play is far beyond you or me. But maybe not enough to compete with the younger people that are coming at this and figuring out the patterns. And it's all... It's pattern recognition is all you're doing. You know, and and... You know, maybe he's not quite as fast as he used to be, but I, I'm I'm sort of glad that um, that um, they're not taking away all his records because I feel like that would destroy him as a human. Of course, yeah, it means a lot to him. <laughs> yeah. But so it did. So it did to Todd Rogers and a lot of other Twin Galaxy uh, players. Right now, how did they know? say that that they cheated? Who? Either. Well, as I said, Billy Mitchell, he cheated using you, emulation. No, you, you didn't say that yet, but you said that before we recorded. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Billy Mitchell. So, um, yeah, this is actually funny because, you know, when, when I was interviewing um, Billy Mitchell, he was always like, oh, I have no idea about how the computers work. I have no idea how this tech stuff works, you know? Right. I just play and let do the tech stuff, the other guys. But it appears that nobody actually knew that he was using emulation 
to manipulate the record and stuff. So it seems he knows a lot more and how, than he originally claims. How would you he use does. emulation to to? Yeah, well, well, first, I, well, it's, I, I get it's the... all in the it's all in the Donkey Kong forum. Oh, okay. There are gifts, animations, and stuff, oh, so we right. can link to that, yeah. and, and then people can read it. I didn't read it uh, thoroughly. Yeah, I, I feel like with Billy Mitchell, too much beyond me. I feel like yeah. with Billy Mitchell, a lot of his, you know, I don't understand technology. I just you know push the buttons and and whatnot. Is is half a, a good eighty to eighty five percent of his personality is a um is a character almost you know with the ridiculous tie and and the and the glorious mullet and and all that you know it's 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 kind of a a, a it's a character that he that he plays and i think so you think probably... he is smarter he's smarter oh, yeah. than he actually admits himself oh yeah oh yeah some things maybe you know he needed some help using skype to talk to to talk to you and maybe some things like that, you know, he's not too adept at. But as far as you know, figuring out how to how to get ahead in the game, whether that's you know being better at it or by whether that's that's by recognizing the pattern in the game or by using some way to manipulate the game to be better at it. Yeah, I'm pretty, he could probably figure it out. He's not. He could probably figure out how to use Skype too if he if he applied himself. But he, you know. That's not uh, within the scope of what he's known for. Okay, he's, he's not—he's so, not Billy Mitchell, the Skype guy. He's—he's <laughs> he's Billy Mitchell, perfect Pac-Man and Donkey right, Kong player. Right, yeah. exactly. So, hmm. so who's next? Who, who are you going to throw under the bus next? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Who, who's never going to talk to us again? Again, next. Well, it's not my fault. <laughs> I just um, put them in touch with David Crane. That's all I did. Yeah. No, yeah. I have I have nothing against Billy Mitchell. I, d I don't think you have anything against. No, Billy I Mitchell. don't have anything against Billy Mitchell. He was he was a perfect gentleman when I met him. Little, little ridiculous, but perfect. Per you know, nice guy. <laughs> Do you really want to keep that in? What? A bit ridiculous. He, no, uh, he. Okay. Here's the thing, Billy Mitchell. I, he knows this. Okay, this isn't this isn't something that that is. Go, look, Google Billy Mitchell. Okay, that's all. Do an image search. Google Billy Mitchell. The guy has uh, he, he's got these ridiculous America ties on. He's got. I, I mean, it's a. It, it's part of part of Billy Mitchell. Part of who he is is this is this stage act. It's this dog and pony show. Come out with the silly tie and the hairdo and all that stuff. That's that's the persona, and and I don't think I'm I'm being insulting by saying it's he's it's kind of you know he's he's ridiculous because that's what he's trying to be. Otherwise, he's just some dude that's good at a video game. Hmm. You know, you can be some dude that's good at a video game, or you can be some dude that's good at a video game that also has a glorious mullet. Hmm. You know, hmm. I mean that's and that's just you know it's it's. Uh, you know, I, I don't. He, he's a he's a nice guy, and 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 I like him, but he's a little ridiculous. <laughs> Isn't that the same with Walter Day, and always wearing the same T-shirt? Yeah, a little bit. It, it's it's a gimmick. You know, it's it's a gimmick that that they have, and 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 it works. It's brand recognition because when you see him, that's Walter Day, that's Billy Mitchell. You know exactly who you're looking at. 
you know, and, and, and that's, that's way, if you or me, we're good at a video game. If, if we, if we showed up at some arcade, no one would have any idea who the hell we are. But if right. Billy Mitchell walks in, there's no mistake. And here's this six foot five dude with a mullet and a stupid America tie. That's Billy Mitchell. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> there's, there's yeah. no, there's no mistaking him for anybody else. So. Right. So let's close that up. Yes. Um, well, there's also other news. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, sorry. No, no. But carry on. Yes. Uh, yeah. What, what do you want to say? It's I, also I was, your. No, no, no. I was going to. I was going to direct you to the FLI game, but I think you were going there anyway. So. Yes. Exactly. So. <laughs> so we, we rehearsed this for hours before we start. Right. Uh, actually, it's funny that, that the news all happened within the last two days, so it was pretty easy on us. Yeah, yeah, that was perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the retro scene, yeah. arcade scene, for making all the news on the weekend, on a Friday. <laughs> perfect. Yeah. Um, yeah, right. So there's actually some um, experimental C64 game preview on youtube called happy go plucky and this guy actually called cruiser actually invented a new fly technique to make a whole game in the fly Dang. high res is it, is it, it's it's okay it's not in high res at all is it it's fly it F all is fly. FLI. the whole thing flexible is fly. fli flexible line interface that's where you get you you can use all colors everywhere, or, or uh, there's exactly. some restrictions on it. But I'm looking at it. Is this? I I I have difficulty in determining. No, I guess this is actually high res. It's not. It is. It's not that it multi. Is. It doesn't have the fat yeah. pixels. Yeah, and he he writes <clears throat> that he's using um a fl uh, FLI overlays as a background, and. That means a multicolor bitmap with a forced bad line every second line to get more colors, plus a layer of sprites to get a better resolution. God, that's got to suck to code. Well, it's something that's uh, never hate, been done before. I hate coding FLI because you can't do anything with it. Well, I can't do anything with it. Obviously, some people can do something with it, but I'm useless with this. But This will be the first game in this new um, yeah. technique. Yeah. Now, will it be available for NTSC? Well, he's not promising anything, if sure. it, even if this game will be finished. I'm sure it won't be on NTSC because there's no because because it's one thing to um, to NTSC fix something regularly, and and we've seen from Sam's journey that in some instances it's easier just to throw in an RU and, and offload some calculations rather than make a whole NTSC fix, even though we haven't actually done that podcast yet. But we actually totally should talk. To we do. We should. We that. absolutely should talk to the guy that made Sam's journey. That would be a great idea for a podcast. Um, but, <laughs> but uh, so, so it's one thing to NTSC fix a game, something like this, that is so in FLI is not an easy thing to fix to begin with. And then to, um, to, he would have to be, be developing separate versions concurrently in order to do that. And it would just be a real pain. I doubt it's ever going to be done, but still it looks cool. And you know, emulators exist. So 
Hmm. Right. Yes. Or you can modify your C64 to make it NDSC. I did that. Or PAL. I actually did that. I, I put in the PAL chips and the uh, and I soldered the little thingy or unsoldered or whatever the hell you got to do to make it PAL. And, but I don't have a PAL monitor, so it was just you know black and white. And but you fun. can use the TV. Uh, uh, well, yeah, but none of the TVs that I have could handle it. Seriously? Yeah, I've got I've got an LCD that it's it's an LCD TV with S video and all that stuff and. I plugged it in and it's black and white. Our TVs here in Germany, most for the most part, can handle it. That's that's what I'm seeing. Everyone says that most TVs that are made can handle both NTSC and PAL signals. I've got like eight TVs in this house, and not a single freaking one of them can handle PAL. And they're all they're so new. We are lucky they're not, guys. They're not old. I mean, the one that I'm using for my 64 screen is. A couple of years old. It's it's one of the last SD mon- uh, LCD monitors they made. It's just wow. a TV. It's an LCD TV. But so I'm the lucky one. Yeah, yeah, evidently. Hmm. I mean, you can get these things in PAL. When I was at the uh, when I was at VCF, um, um, the Guru Meditation guys had the identical monitor or the identical TV, except it was the PAL version. Because hmm. I remember saying to them, I'm like, is that is that the NTSC one? Because mine doesn't do that. And they were like, no, that that's PAL. That's why. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. All right. So, and the news. I got nothing. Hmm. Well, pretty, pretty easy this in, in time. Other news, in other news, Rob Hubbard is actually going to be on the phone with us momentarily. Wow. That's pretty freaking awesome. How did that happen? <laughs> yeah, really. How did that happen? Oh yes, maybe we should say um, that actually a lot of actually recently we got some messages about um, the podcast not loading on some Android apps. Oh, so you what? What Android? Don't remember? Apps? No, I don't. Oh, oh, is that that big long email chain that I'm not reading? <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> It's yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. Okay, yeah, I did hear that then. <laughs> you are the best group mate. I ever. know, really. I'm so I'm so in tune to what's happening with my group mates. Um it's it's worked on every uh, every uh, app I've tried to use. I happen to if you use Android, I totally recommend Pocket Casts. That's what I use. And it's pretty pretty bitchin'. Anyway, it was an ampersand sign oh. in the title of the last podcast that broke it for some systems, so oh, I removed that. Oh, okay. That'll teach us. Yeah, not use an ampersand. Um, right, and people actually asked us, like, where is the new podcast? I need it. I want it. I love you. Okay. Oh, jeez. They, were they cute? <laughs> <laughs> all right so that's it okay well then we well for for people that were asking where the podcast is it's it's right here um and actually by the time you hear this there will have been another one that was also out because we're we're stacking them up for some reason we're uh we've Life. got we've got a pipeline for once but uh yeah so so rob hubbard is right there well, 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 he's he's at he's not right there. He's at home on his telephone. 
waiting to hear from us. So let's go and do that. So today we are talking to Rob Hubbard, who is known to be... The, the Rob Hubbard. Yeah, the Rob Hubbard. The um, most famous composer, I would say, for, for computer game music. Nice, nice to talk to you, Rob. Okay, yeah. So let's start a bit. Um, how did you actually got involved into computers and into um, game music? I was working as a musician and um, started to get into computers and then learning about programming. And um, I did some educational software first and that didn't go anywhere or lead to anything. So I um, looked at a few games and I did a game and uh, wrote all the graphics utilities and all that kind of stuff. And people thought the, the game wasn't very good. And just before the game was finished, the company went bankrupt, so it never shipped. But people liked the music, so then I thought, well, maybe I should just try and do music. And so um, I sent a lot of demos and called up all the games companies. And then after about four, five or six months, somebody gave me a job. And then um, after I had a couple of games published, then a lot of work came in to do the music and that's when it took off and this is back in the time when you couldn't just you couldn't just make music you had to write the drivers and the software to run it and everything else and the editors to oh, make yeah, it you and everything. To, yeah you, you had to be a you know 65 or 2 machine code guy and you had to know about hexadecimal and you know logical ands and alls and all that kind of stuff so, what was actually the first platform you worked on? I mean, you, you are most known for the C64 music, but you, you also did a lot of other stuff. Um, for yeah. example, you also did PC speaker music. That is what yeah. most people don't know about. Yeah. The, all the early stuff I did was actually on the C64. It wasn't until later on that I did um, Amstrad and Spectrum 128, and then later on Amiga ST stuff. And it wasn't until I went to Electronic Arts that I started, you know, they did a lot of PC games. And that's when we had to support Adlib and MT32, Corvox, and a little little square wave PC speaker. And then they later did NES, Super Nintendo, and Sega Genesis stuff. So there was quite a few platforms there. As you said, you, you originated into the C64 it must have been quite hard to go back to the beeper speaking uh, to the beeper speaker of the PC. I mean, you oh, did yeah. some impressive stuff there. For example, Indianapolis 500 sounds pretty yeah. good on a PC speaker. <laughs> well, the one you should check out is the um, Ski or Die. You should check that out on the PC speaker. I had this ridiculous guitar solo in Ski or Die, and I converted it all. It was actually done on a MIDI guitar and uh, I had to edit six channels of MIDI data down into one channel and I got it to work on a PC speaker. It sounds insane but you should check it out. But, you know, it, it, it was a bit of a come down after, you know, doing C64 and Amiga stuff to suddenly have to try to do PC stuff, especially later on when you had to support so many different PC formats. So you had to get a system of trying to get the music to work on PC speaker Tandy, which was another PC 
offshoot and um, uh, the Covox little add-on and the uh, Roland MT32 and ad-lib boards. So it was like doing, you know, four or five games on one platform. Did you have to make different versions for each one? Yeah, yeah. And then when you, when you finished all that, you then have the, the worst task of all is trying to do sound effects <laughs> for the game. There might be like, you know, 30 sound effects you've got to try and do on all those different platforms on the PC. It was just, it was pretty awful, really. It requires a lot of patience and tenacity to basically get stuck in and do it. So so how was it for you to make the music for all those different platforms? Did you have to relearn how to make a driver all all from the scratch again or at at some time at some point you were like, "Oh, it's no problem. I can do an, a new platform anytime." Um when I first started doing PC stuff, uh it was pre-MIDI. And so that was still the, the old kind of byte stream type of format, which was just, you know, more or less assembly language hexadecimal. But then when the Roland MT32 came out, I developed a system which was MIDI-based so that I could have um, a multi-channel MIDI file which, which would work basically on the different platforms. So, for instance, I would have, like, channel... 15 would be dedicated just for PC speaker and then you know like channels 12, 13 and 14 would be dedicated for just the Tandy version and then um, the rest would be dedicated for the AdLib and the MT32 so it made it a little bit easier in that respect because then I would just create one you know larger kind of MIDI file which would then work with on the different platforms but it still didn't help with the, all the sound effects that you had to do. You had to, do, you had to basically hard code all those separately for, for all the different platforms. I see. So you did your music in, in mind that you would have to um, rearrange it for different platforms, so you're, you, you did dedicated channels. That's interesting. Um, yeah. it, it's, it's also interesting to know that, um, for example, when you did the music for Commando, it's pretty interesting because and when you did that in 85 for the Commodore 64, there yeah. wasn't so much advanced music out there in video games. You were one of the first that actually did something really catchy and something yeah. advanced for its time. Yeah, so, I know. I know. It's, it's, uh, it's quite strange looking back on all that, you know. I've just been looking at Commando, strangely enough, because... I have to do this uh, talk in Nottingham on the 19th or 20th of January. And um, one of the things I'm going to talk about is is Commando. So I've actually been looking at it and I don't have any source code for it because all the source code that I had, a bit of a long story, but it was all put in the trash. It was all put in the skip at Electronic Arts back in the 90s. So I had to get the original, I had to find a SID file, a commander, and reverse engineer it to put it into source code so I could then get some source code that I could show people. So, yeah, Commando was one of those early kind of pioneering electro-funk type things that emerged. 
Mm, it actually goes, the story, I don't know if that is true, but I, I, I read it in the High Voltage Collection, that you actually composed that in the at, at one night and then you played it on all computers in the office. Yeah. <laughs> I know I was a bit crazy back then, you know, I was... Um, sometimes I could I could get energy where I, I don't know where it came from, but I was I they called me up and I went down there and I didn't start work on it till about ten ten o'clock at night and I worked through the night right through until you know six o'clock in the morning and then people started to come in the office about eight o'clock and I I loaded the thing up on every Commodore sixty four that was in their office for some reason I don't know I was probably just tired and. A bit crazy in those days, you know. Yeah, so that's probably, I think that's true. That's a true story. So back in the day, you you had so much stuff to do, you you sometimes didn't know how to f to fit that all in in the available time you had. Yeah, yeah. I mean, once I'd, got, once I'd gone past, you know, doing thing on a spring and Monty on the run, I got lots of phone calls and I never ever turned down work because, you know, for the first time in my life I was starting to get a lot of work and I never, I basically would commit to everything that was thrown at us. So I used to work crazy hours during the day and night to get all that stuff done. Look at the, all the work I did, like, um, 85, 86, 87, um, before I went to EA, which was beginning of 1988. There's an awful lot of stuff there. Oh yes, I mean, you you are known especially for a lot of System 3 stuff, for example, International Karate. Yeah, that was something which was uh, based upon um, another piece of music which they, people thought that I ripped off International Karate from that Merry Christmas Mr. Lawrence. Well, the truth of the matter is that that's what they asked for. You know, some of these games, a lot of things they actually asked for certain specific pieces of music and I just did my best to try to accommodate them. I wasn't going to argue, so um, that's what it was based upon. And I just tried my best to, you know, to try to give them something that would make them happy and pay me a check. So you would basically do um, music for, for basically anything as long as you got a check. But, but I guess... Um, it must also be hard to make music for a game that you didn't like. Was there any of such games where you said like, ah, this music is crap, uh, this, this game is crap, but I have to make the music for it anyway? <laughs> well, um, that really didn't happen because a, a lot of the time, especially, you know, with those Mastertronics games, I only got, I never actually saw the game. I just got a description about what it was supposed to be about sometimes i might go and see the programmer and get a look at the game but i didn't really spend a lot of the time you know trying to figure out what the game was actually going to be doing because i wanted to get back and get on with writing you know doing the music for it and get on to the next project i mean there was only one game that i thought really was a bit not not very proper and that was the sam fox script poker and uh, I think I, I think I put a a false name on that to disguise the fact, you know. But um, yeah, that's exactly what I had in mind. So you so you, how... you remember that? 
I don't know if you remember that or not, you know. Oh yeah. Of course. Oh, of yeah. course, yeah. yeah. So yeah. so that that must have felt that must have felt pretty odd for you to figure out that the music was used in such a game. Well, you know, I mean they you know, they wanted me to do some kind of like ragtimey type of music and so that's what I did. I I mean I wasn't that I wasn't that bothered because they were gonna pay me to do it, so I did it. <laughs> okay, I see. Yeah, yeah, it's, work is work. I think I know? used like I think I used the name John Smith or something like that. <laughs> but, you know, I didn't use my own name on that. Um, yeah, John York. <clears throat> was it John York? Was it? I yeah. don't know. <laughs> um, I guess I guess you also had, as you mentioned, nicknames. You also had a nickname called Rob with with double B, right? Yeah, sometimes, yeah. Yeah, I don't know where that came from either. Maybe that was a CompuNet type thing. I'm not sure. And you, and you also, yeah, you also kept it throughout the years. Okay, interesting. Yeah. But but there were people asking like, is is he is he uh, spelled with one B or double B? You know. So anyway, um, no, it's, it's, scene it's handle. one B. It's only one B. So it's yeah. As as I said, it's more like a scene handle with double B, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, with with all those many games you did, um, did you ever do a game where you thought, um, and you listened back to it in the end result, that originally this wasn't possible with the platform you worked on, and then at the end you were like totally hyped to hear, wow, this sounds really better than I than I imagined it. Yeah, I think that happened. That happened a few times. A few of those early games that happened like that. Thing on a spring and Monty on the run. I mean, there was that middle section of Monty on the run with the. Um, I put all that pitch bend stuff in there, trying to emulate some of the guitar licks that I knew, and um, that turned out better than what I imagined when I was first thinking about it. And then uh, the other one that stands out is Arcade Classics, which was the, uh, the first thing on a on a C64 that used samples in a musical way. Uh, with the um, to actually change pitches and em emulate instruments, which had the digitized guitar, and then I had three voice digitized chords as well to give a kind of an illusion of six voice Sid going on. That turned out to be one of the best uh, things that I did. And it had an absolutely insane guitar solo thing in the middle. So let's talk a bit. How how was actually the typical way of getting a music done? What what was the first step you took till the final end result? I mean, for example, from Formula One there are there's a recording from a synthesizer you did and, and then you kind of maybe sized it down to three voice sit music. Is that how you did it back in the days? Um most there's a couple of things that I did that were kind of versions of stuff that I'd done before I started doing the C64. Formula One, uh, Chimera, Phantoms of the Asteroid uh, were all kind of things that I'd done using other equipment before I did the C64. Most of the other C64 and all the um, electronic art stuff was uh, didn't have that about about them. So the, the way that it would it was generally done like in the eighties was I would get an idea from somewhere and start to 
sketch out the a basic idea on score paper, you know, using traditional notation, so that when I started to enter that in terms of hexadecimal uh, notation, I, I could basically do it a bit more accurately because I had, like, something on manuscript to refer to. And then it was a question of... Um, Primo on a sit chip, it was really thinking about bass first and melody. Well, actually, the other way around melody and bass line. Try to get something reasonably strong between those two elements, and then uh, think about uh, developing what I was going to be doing with the other voice. But later on, on the Sega Genesis, it was much more of a case of being more specific, writing stuff out on score paper, and then coding it up with a bit with a bit more freedom that was uh, available on a C64 and then later on with it being MIDI it was all pre-done in MIDI so there wasn't that kind of restriction so I would tend to use a bit less I would still write some stuff on score paper but I would do a little bit less when it's MIDI because you tend to have the ideas coming to you, you haven't got time to write them down you want to get them in the sequencer and start editing and uh, developing the ideas that way. Hmm, interesting. So um, did you like it more to work for modern platforms like, as I said, MIDI, AdLib, where you didn't have so much limitations? Or were you fine with the limitations of NES, um, Atari or um, C64? I think that every one of those things poses different problems. Okay. Um, I must admit that I never liked the, it, what was it, the AY chip, the thing that was in the Atari ST and okay. the uh, Amstrad and the Spectrum 128. <coughs> I actually preferred the Atari chip to that. The Paula, uh, sorry, no, Paula uh, was Amiga. Amiga, sorry, that, that was my mistake, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, the Amiga was fine, that was an interesting an interesting uh, machine very interesting machine the c64 i think was kind of unique because the the sid chip was much more of a synthesizer chip and so a lot of people strangely enough prefer like the sid chip sounds to the um, sample sounds of the amiga because it's more kind of organic and um with it being synthesized it has a certain kind of a charm and a quality about it The AdLib was an FM chip, and so that always sounded a bit of a... It was only a two-operator FM, as opposed to, you know, the Yamaha DX7, which, what was it, like four or six-operator FM. And so the AdLib tended to sound a little bit tinny. Um, uh, for the life of me, I can't remember the FM chip on the Sega Genesis. I know it wasn't two operators. It was probably at least four so that had a bit of a much more beefy sound. Plus you could play samples on the Z80, so you had a sample channel as well. So, you know, you tend to grow into whatever the hardware is available. And then the M32 is, was, a, was like a re quite a revolutionary MIDI box at the time when it came out, and so that was quite a huge step forward. And that was the precursor to the what was known as the sound canvas, and the general MIDI that uh, later became well-known. 
but um, but there are some systems, for example, the Mega Drive or in USA called Genesis, where yeah. actually most composers didn't use both sound chips because it had a Yamaha and it had a sec- Texas instrument sound chips, and most composers only used one of both. Um, I can't, I, to, to be honest, I, I can't remember. I I, know, I remember the FM chip. I remember playing, you know, getting samples to work. So I often used, like, drum samples in conjunction with the FM chip. But I, I don't remember using um, the, the uh, Texas Instruments chip at all. I don't yeah. know if anybody else did, you know. Yeah, very few people did. Most people just ignored the Texas Instruments chip. That's true. Yeah, there are just a f- there are just one or two games that use it. For example, Batman is one example where it uses both sound chips. But you are right; most people just use the Yamaha one, and they just yeah. totally ignored the uh, Texas Instruments one. Yeah, um, yeah. <clears throat> when when you worked on the AdLib stuff, I'm I'm interested. Did you? Did you listen to any other composers, what they did? For example, on the PC, Bobby Prince was pretty big. You know, uh, it's software, for example. No, no, I just did my own thing, and I was pretty conscious of um, when I was at, when I worked for EA, I was pretty conscious about deliberately not listening to a lot of music, apart from um, classical music and jazz. I mean, I didn't listen to any... I made a quite a conscious effort not to listen to, you know, certain pop music and video game music because the last thing I wanted was for any of that stuff subconsciously to sink in and then, you know, I accidentally ripped something off and caused a loss, so, you know. Ah, okay. Um, so I, I deliberately did not listen to a lot of, you know, what everybody else was doing. Um, okay. That's that's interesting because um, most people you spoke to got influenced by other people, but you say you you try on purpose not to be influenced and not trying a lawsuit yeah. Um, triggering. Yeah, I mean it's so easy, you know. Your musical brain is quite weird. It's in fact the way that it can um, remember certain little phrases and melodies, and sometimes you know you can um, you can write something. And then the next day, you suddenly think, "Oh, hang on! I've just written something which is um, happens to be quite a well-known tune." Or accidentally, you know, I didn't. It just happens to by coincidence. Sometimes you actually write something, and because there's only eight notes in a seven, eight notes in a, in a major scale, you can write something quite innocently that happens to be the same as something else, because of. The laws of uh, chance, I suppose, random chance that you can do that. Did it ever happen to you that you had to redo music because you copied something without knowing? No, um, in actual fact, that, that that never did happen. But I was, you know, really uh, conscious of trying to avoid it. I mean, I did um, something on uh, one of the 3D games that I did, and then <clears throat> just after I'd written it, the a movie came out and the theme was absolutely identical to what I'd written, <laughs> wow. uh, you know. So, but these things do happen when, you know, you're trying to, especially if you're trying to write in a very um, formulaic or stylized way, that can happen quite easily. Right. But you try, you know, you try to avoid it, but 
sometimes it, you know these things happen. Wow. So so did you feel honored to figure out that the music actually did uh, that the movie actually did something that is totally identical to what what you did before? No, it was just a little bit strange, you know. Um, like I said, because you 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 know you tr you're trying to write in a very specific style, and he was trying to write in a specific style, and it's happened to come up with the same kind of basic motif that you came up with. Um, it was quite a famous composer as well. I, I can't remember who it was, but it was a, it was one of the um, A or B list Hollywood guys from the movie. Hmm. Interesting. <clears throat> so, um, actually, you, you mentioned you didn't really like so much to work on the Atari sound chip, but, but then you also did what most no, people no, don't... No, the Atari, with the Atari ST, uh. not, the, not the Atari 800. The Atari 800 was, was um, <clears throat> actually more fun than the ST. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, the, the 800 had, the, was that the Pokey chip in the 800? And then the... Uh... Yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah. Yes, and the uh, Terry ST one was a Yamaha uh, 2149. Yeah, that's um, a yeah. AY chip or something. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, what most people actually don't know, you, you even did um, international karate on the Atari 2, right? Yeah, that's right, yeah, on the Atari 800. Yeah, on the Atari yeah. 800. And yeah. I was actually uh, surprised... How much you you managed to copy your your sound from the SID chip in that yeah. one? Yeah, the um, the Atari 800 was basically a 6502 mm. microprocessor, which is the same as the C64. Right. So a lot of the a lot of the code that I had would port straight across wow. all the basic yeah. <coughs> passing of the driver would, you know, would just port straight across. And then it was a question of, um, you know, coming up with ways to um, try to replicate some of the sounds within the limitations of that, what's it called, the pokey chip. And and I remember a lot of people telling that that they thought this kind of, this kind of sound is not possible on the, on the pokey chip. <laughs> really? I don't know. <laughs> you also mentioned that you um, did music for the for for electronic arts, and there's one famous example that would be um, Skate or Die. Yeah. And and most people around the world actually never listen to Skate or Die into the intro music in the correct speed because <laughs> I, from what i from what i've heard most uh, cracks around the world actually um didn't didn't do it correct because um it was playing on the on the wrong speed and there was a big deal about that um until they they found a version that's actually playing correctly and and it was told that that you confirmed it is that something that um, that so came to not, you? Um, on the C64, I don't think you could... Um, I don't think there was a way you could tell if it was um, NTSC or PAL. So if you, when, if you did stuff in, in Europe, it was PAL. If you did stuff in America, it was NTSC, which is running at 60 hertz. PAL runs at 50 hertz. Yeah. I think on... Um, 
on other machines like the Sega Genesis, I think there was a way you could tell if you were on PAL or NTSC and you make adjustments. But if, I suppose if you, the only way to get skate or die at the right speed is to get a get the game and play it on a NTSC machine, and that will be the right speed. Ah, so, <laughs> so my machine is the right, awesome, beautiful. I've been listening to it at the right speed all this time. <laughs> You've been listening to it at the right speed, yeah, or the wrong speed. <laughs> awesome. That's the, that's like the one time that this piece of music that I've 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 known forever has been. It's been the correct speed because in yeah. NTSC usually you you hear everything fast and then you hear it the way it's supposed to hear it's supposed to sound yeah. and it sounds so slow and 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 lumbering but this is what it's supposed to be nice yes yeah, yeah actually actually Electronic Arts did two releases of Ski or Die uh, sorry Skate or Die um, one was for the European market and one was for the American market. But I guess what 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 floated around as cracks by cracking groups wasn't the European version. So that is most mm. people who didn't play the original game they they listened to it wrongly. Um, I think but, a lot back then too. Yeah. You know, just you know, when you did a Palor NTSC version, it wasn't so much making making it run at the same speed. It was just making it run at all so the american yeah. version would still be it would be faster than the european version as long as they both yeah. worked mm. yeah yeah i actually tried it out the skate or die that i have is the american version if i write it on my america uh, on my european c64 it would simply crash mm. so it and it's but basically a problem of running at all mm. um and and I'm not really sure if I remember correctly, but Rob, I think you also did the NES conversion of the tune, or was that somebody else? It was uh, Skate or Die 2. I, yeah, I, I yeah, okay. The, okay. I, I did, I remember I did Skate or Die 2. I don't know about Skate or Die 1 on the NES. Uh, right. I don't remember... Um, Skate or Die 2 was actually known because um, you did something that people didn't think was um, possible on the NS hardware. You did um, this, um, the, um, the samples sounding so clear, clearer than anybody else on the NES before. Do you remember anything about that, how you achieved such such crystal clear um well um digital samples on the nes with with uh, um, skate or die 2 no to be honest i can't remember how, you know how it was done i don't really remember anything much about the nes hardware um i do remember like doing something weird which i'll tell you about <laughs> um, okay sure because uh these memory mapped I.O. Um, machines, I, I was always convinced that there might be some kind of hidden registers, right? So I remember, um, like, write, writing a piece of code to start to toggle all the different bits in, you know, in all the all, in all of the memory mapped I.O. arrays to see if there was anything that would that was hidden, that was not documented. I remember doing that. And um, so I might have done that on the NES 
to see if there was uh, a piece of hardware that they weren't telling anybody about. Mm. I remember like trying to write different combinations of bits to different registers to see if that would produce anything that was not documented. Because, I mean, on the C64, you could use um, a pulse waving combination with a, um, what was it, a triangle wave to get a comp- to get another diff- a, a different sound, which mm-hmm. wasn't documented. And so um, I, I remember trying to uh, interrogate the uh, memory mapped I.O. on the NES to see if, if anything like that existed. And um, it might have been something that I found that did that. Or it might have been just uh, playing around uh, with an interrupt on the um, volume register or something. I can't remember exactly what it was. I remember using very... I could do like 17, 18 or 32-byte samples of... um, very short waveforms on the NES, which I think I used on Im- on that Immortal game on the NES. Wow. Okay. Great. Um. So. So. So Project Hubbard is the, the thing that's happening right now. Um. <laughs> and so. Yeah. Yeah. So. So you're 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 getting a chance to go back. How how is it going back and looking at all this stuff again? You know, years after it was it's been done. You know, at years after you did it, going back and, and, and seeing your old stuff and, and diving back into it. It's been very, it's been very stressful. <laughs> uh, to be honest, you know, when halfway through that Kickstarter campaign, you know, I was going to tell Chris Abbott to just knock it on the head because it was making me ill, you know. It, the stress was just too much. Mm. And I thought, I can't do this, you know. And um, anyway, I was ill for a you know, couple of weeks, and then by the time I'd kind of got better, the thing was finished. Um, okay. But i uh been investigating, you know. I never ever said I would do a, a SID tune again, but since, since that Kickstarter finished, I think I've done six different SID tunes, all using original original code hmm. it's just that it just so happens that I over the years that I kept some I did keep uh, some old code from one of the EA games that I did on the C64 and I kind of adapted that to do a, a few SID tunes so that's that's been kind of that's been a little bit strange trying to you know put the mindset back into the 80s when I was doing that stuff and it's it's not easy at all especially when you've been used to doing other things um right you've been you're you're into you know jazz and music theory and everything now and so revisiting this extremely limited form of of creating music compared to what to what you can do just you know with with simple you know cheap equipment that you can get anywhere now yeah. You know, going yeah. back and trying to figure this out again has got to be... Yeah. Well, you know, you you just basically put yourself back in that mindset. And you have to get back to just uh, some kind of melody and bass line and, and then work it from there. It's hard to do something that's got a, a little bit more complex structure, although 
you know, you try to do it, um, but with the limitation, you have to accept that's all it can do. One of the things we wanted to, that Chris wanted to do with the Kickstarter was he was hoping to get enough money so we could do these orchestral concerts, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I'd, I'd spent quite a lot of work working with uh, Sibelius, or doing some orchestrations, which is woodwind section, string section, brass and percussion. And that's like completely the opposite of working with a sit chip. Right. You know, doing a full or- orchestration. <laughs> but unfortunately, we never reached that goal, so I don't know if that will ever happen. Well, do you think going back and using, going back and, and, and looking at this again, um, has any benefit or impact to what you're doing now? Because when I got started getting back into this stuff, I'm not a, I'm not a musician on the '64, but but I did do graphics, and when yeah. I came back to it, and suddenly I had the the limitations of the low resolution and the limited color palette, it kind of yeah helped me with with other stuff because you know it's it's sort of paring down everything to the bare minimum and the, you know you, you kind of pick up stuff that you might have forgotten about that you can then apply to other to other things that you're doing well if if something is um has like a certain foundation and it's strong enough it will work i mean what i've found is that i tried to maybe adapt some of the more recent stuff um, to the to the uh, SID chip, and it it proves to be too difficult because there's too much other stuff going on um, mm-hmm. to make it work. And so, like I say, I've done like about these six tunes. Um, I found it much easier to basically start from scratch. Um, so most of it's pretty original stuff that I've done, you know, recently especially for the SID chip rather than trying to take something that I've written for another format. It doesn't it doesn't seem to work so well. But like I say, if you can get the the basic elements to be strong enough, you've got a better chance that it will work. I, I wonder back in the day, um, what was your opinion about the Z64C that actually had a different SID chip in it? The Eighty-five, eighty. That sounded a bit different. For years, whenever I heard the Skater Die soundtrack, I never heard the Digis because I had that that newer sixty-four C. And it was only years later that I actually heard the full song and was like, "Whoa!" The the thing was, it sounded good, no matter even without the Digis, it still sounded good. And then you know, I hear it on something else, and it's like, "Well, dang, that's a whole different song." (laughs) I I I really. I didn't really know. Um, when did the C, when did that machine come out? Um, oh, you 80, didn't know. 80, 86 okay. or 87? It had the newer SID chip that didn't 86. play. Yeah. yeah, the Digis didn't play right on it. They were very quiet, and it was they fixed some of the bugs in the old SID chip, but in fixing the bugs, they, they ruined some of the cool things about it. No, I mean, I just had bog-standard C64s and, uh, you know, the thing kind of worked or it didn't work and that was that was it really okay i see i see so you were much more concerned about the ntsc power difference than a set chip difference okay yeah <clears throat> so um 
as we spoke about orchestras, that's actually not the first time you worked on it. I mean, for example, you in 2004, you worked on Run 10. That was also um, a CD release, but also orchestra release together with Yeruntel, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was... Um, I can't remember what year that was. It was probably 2007 or something. 2006 or something, I don't know. Yeah, that was with the um, thing sponsored by the Dutch Arts Council with the that little small... It was just a, it wasn't a proper orchestra. It was just a eleven or twelve piece ensemble. So unfortunately, there's not enough strings to really make it work properly. But it was still quite fun to do it. Okay, interesting. So um, were you surprised back in the day that people was um, people were interested in listening to to, to your music? I mean, that was b before the retro hype, actually. Yeah, or, it must or, be. The, yeah. the, is, it, is it strange now to, to, to think about, you know, these were, as you said before, you know, you didn't really put, a, you know, if a job came your way, you took it because, you know, it was a job. And yeah. and a lot of times that's, you know, how, how, how you look at things back then. You're younger, you're... you're, you're You're establishing yourself, you know, here's a job, do some music, get it out the door. And and now it's, you've become like this institution in in at least the <laughs> C64 scene. And is yeah. that is that kind of strange at all to you? Does, does it like feel weird to have these people revering you like that? Yeah, I, it, you know, I, I've got to say that, you know, when, when, when I say that um, I got these jobs, right, and I, it was a case of, I've got to get it done, get it out the door. I mean, it was still um, it was still ridiculous the amount of effort that I put into doing those games and the amount of commitment and um, passion that I had for what I was doing. I mean, I didn't like kind of. It was never a case that I like just threw a couple of crummy ideas together and you know, got it in the machine and got it out the door. It was, I mean, I was pretty much 100, 120% committed to um, what I was doing with each project hmm. because I was very, very conscious that, you know, um, I wanted to try to keep on top of everything and to keep the work coming in. So I, I, I definitely went the extra mile on loads of those games um, more than what everybody else was doing. I mean, doing some of these things that were like eight, nine, ten, twelve minutes long was insane. But that's the le that's the amount of effort that I put into those games because I wanted to basically try to keep on top of it. Right. Um, what was the other question? By by all these games, oh, no, you, it mentioned, did. you you mentioned yeah. about like the uh, the retro people and all that. Right, you know? right, yeah. Um, it's really weird because um, in the eighties, right, the whole thing started off with you know little simple games, and then went into this crazy uh, demo scene, <laughs> which led to you know all the um, way over the top 
in really intense music tracks like uh, the Thalamus stuff and you know Knuckle Busters and all that, which was all fueled by the demo scene people and all all that kind of uh, all all that weird stuff that was going on. And then when I went to um, the states, it suddenly got switched off completely. And uh, people said, "Well, what do you do?" I said, "Oh, I work on games." So all I got was, um, oh, you're that dreadful guy who does those nauseating beeps and boops on those bloody awful games. And so then I said, oh, no, no, I'm just a guy who writes the code. And so like, through most of the 90s, I kind of buried my head in the sand about all that stuff in the 80s because people just thought it was a load of horrible beeps and boops. And then it wasn't until, you know... I kind of came back to Europe and um, people started to get into the retro scene that they give it some kind of validation. Mm. And uh, so I'm quite kind of proud of it all now, you know, because I think having checked some of it out recently, some of the stuff I've had for 30 years, you know, there's a lot of um, pretty reasonable stuff in there. And, um, you know... I look back now and I'm, I feel kind of pretty proud of, of a lot of it. Right, and I also feel like the the um, the '64 could almost be seen, or or is now being seen more as um, sort of a, an instrument in its own right. You know, that people aren't they they use it for the synthesizing you know abilities that it has. You know, the mainstream musicians are starting to use noises from that or taking samples from it and putting that in their actual yeah. songs and stuff and so it, it can be seen less as you know the annoying bleeps and bloops in video games and more as as a, like a, a synthesizer essentially that yeah that exactly, was yeah. used as a tool you know the, the the bleeps and bloops comment mainly came from the fact that they were i don't think they were talking about c64 i think the most most of them were talking about the nes the nintendo boxes right but, <clears throat> mm. C sixty four is more of a wall. I had that kind of wall. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you actually got your validation recently in getting a doctoral oh, degree, yes. right? For yeah, your music yeah. achievements. Let's yeah, talk a bit about that. We should be calling him Doctor Rob Hubbard, actually. Yeah, I think that was um, quite a surprise, really. But you know, it, it acts. You know, to me, it's. I'd rather have that than get a knighthood from the Queen, you know. It means more to me than uh, getting an honour from the Queen because, it, you know, it means that uh, your peers have basically kind of recognised the body of work that you've done and gives it some kind of validation. And he's basically saying, you know, they're turning around to you and saying you should be proud of what you've achieved, you know. Mm. And now that you've got that, now we can start working on the knighthood from, from the Queen. That's, Say that again? So now that you've got that, we can start working on the knighthood from the Queen. That's next. Oh, yeah. No, I don't <laughs> think that's ever going to happen. You know, the, <laughs> the, the the knighthoods go to, like, all these crony politicians and, you know, eh. celebrities. <laughs> they don't go to the people who deserve it, the ordinary people. <laughs> um, you, you also did live events 
um, about the retro music. For example, 2003 in Brighton for the Back yeah. in Time series. How was that for you to play on stage in front of like 500 retro fans? It was actually difficult because okay. um, for, for various reasons, I didn't have much time to prepare for that. And secondly, I, 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 when I got up to do that, I drank quite a few beers. <laughs> and thirdly, the, the, um, there was an awful slap back echo on the, on the sound, if you know what I mean by a slap back echo, you know, where you hit a note and then a split second later you get a you get a bounce back coming back at you. So it was it was quite difficult to play um, because of under the circumstances. Plus I was pretty nervous as well, so that didn't help. Okay. So despite you are a man with a lot of experience, you still got nervous about playing live on stage. Well, I did for that, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, there's other, th other, other things that I do where I don't get nervous at all, you know, other kind of gigs that I, that I do. But I, I was actually pretty nervous for that. And, you know, the, the slapback echo was a real problem trying to play when, it, you know, with the acoustic of that thing coming back at us all the time was quite difficult. <clears throat> I wonder, if you, if you, as you talk about difficulty, which was the most difficult game tune you did? Which was the most difficult? Yes. Uh, C C64 or, or... Any, or, any platform, if you like. Um, well, the most involved thing that I did was probably the Sherlock Holmes game on the PC because it had, it had an absolute ton of music in it and it was all you know, highly arranged and orchestrated stuff, um, especially the 3DO version. That was probably the most involved. The most involved on the C64 was um, either uh, Delta or Knucklebusters. Delta had actually 13 different pieces of music in it. Now I've just been uh, reverse engineering it because it has some unique pieces of code. It's probably one of the most involved SID tunes for its day. Mm. So um, I've just actually got that code working. I've just reverse engineered the whole lot and got it into source code. But those those were the probably most the most involved that I did. And, and like, yeah, sorry, yeah. Yeah, some of the golf stuff, there was a lot of uh, music in as well. I got to do loads of EA Sports games. I did a few of the golf games. That had quite a lot of music in. <clears throat> so now nowadays you don't do game music anymore. I guess you no. stopped at some point. <clears throat> yeah, uh, yeah. I I did a few o o other other jobs in you know between two thousand one and two thousand and six or five or something. Um, but then you know. People started just licensing music and hiring uh, well-established composers to do uh, orchestral stuff, or they started, you know, using more kind of uh, techno guys to do stuff. So there really didn't seem to be much opportunity. Yeah, I mean, the games now that's just slap an MP3 in there and there's your there's your game music. You know, it's not even. 
in some ways, I, I imagine it can be more difficult because you know you have to. I mean, you're recording an you know an orchestra or something, but at the same level, it, the individual talent is lacking now. Yeah, and then of course you know the budgets go through the roof, right? Right. With these games, and the producer hierarchy gets more convoluted. You know. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. yeah. So you've got like an. Assistant producer, associate producer, senior associate producer, you know, lower level producer, producer, vice president in charge of production, you know. Right. And right. so you got all these <laughs> yeah. levels of who's, who's who's actually calling the shots, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, to me, you know, it, it gets difficult trying to figure out, you know, who you're trying to please and who who. Who has the final say? You know, I mean, if you do something that related to Disney, it has to go through Disney to get their approval. That can take a, you know, however long it takes, and then you get the feedback not from Disney, but from some assistant producer who really doesn't know what he's talking about, trying to then give you direction, which is ends up being absolutely meaningless. You know. Right. He doesn't know how to express in meaningful words what the feedback is. Uh, so you end up going around in circles, then trying to like make changes, guessing what you think that's what they need. And at that point, it's not it's not really much fun. Right. Hmm. Understandable. <clears throat> but then there's also this, this other movement that would be indie game development. I don't know. I haven't really seen much of that, to be honest. It's it's okay. it's a small. I think it's a, a a small pushback. It's the fact that, like you said, it's so bureaucratized the actual game industry that back yeah. you know back then you could look at games and you'd say, oh, that's got music by this guy, or you know, oh, it was coded by this guy, because you only yeah. had teams of like five people doing these, so you knew it's yeah. probably going to yeah. be a good game because you know Saul Cross did it or something, but. Yeah. But now you have no idea who made these. There's there's a there's a laundry list. There's credits that take three and a half hours to scroll through at the end of it for yeah. every mid level yeah. waste disposal management specialist in the company. And, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so there's no, and, and the indie games uh, push has sort of come back where where small teams of you know five six people are coming back and making these these things like um. You know, like Reshoot R, our, our own Altraz was doing the music for. Um, you know, small groups of people doing these these little games that kind of try to capture the 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 feeling of the the older ones, but on new platforms and for a new yeah. audience. No, no, I mean, I think there's been quite a lot on mobile phones, mm-hmm. um, but right. I, I haven't really been involved with that. Do you actually have any future plans regarding a computer game, video game music, or where do you want to go after this project's Hubbard thing is finished? Um, no, I don't have any plans for like video game stuff. Um, not at all. Um, I, I don't think that I could really uh, contribute that much anymore. Because they, you know, they would want something in such a specific style, and then there's all the problems of uh, signing off and, you know, feedback from producers or whoever. Right. 
Um, and, uh, you know, I kind of like had enough of the, the EA was going like that towards the end of my uh, term there. I could see which way it was going, you know. Teams were getting bigger and, um, you know, nowadays you've got like composers all bidding against each other and submitting their work and trying to undercut each other to get a job. But, you know, I don't think I could be part of that anymore. Right. Mm. As far as like when the other, you know, Project H finishes, I have to see if anything else happens after that. Okay, great. You could always just well, walk into the game studio and, and just walk past everyone else and slap the music down to the table and just be like, I'm Rob Hubbard, fool. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I don't think so. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't think I could do that either, to be honest. <laughs> well, you are certainly a big name, so... Wow! Thanks, okay. thanks a lot for taking the time. I hope I hope you enjoyed the interview and we asked you the the right questions. So, okay. thank you and have a good night, Rob. Okay, you too. Right, yeah, thank thanks. You, so, so that was Rob Hubbard. Um, Project Hubbard has wrapped up. It has met its goals, which we probably should have said while he was still here. Um, <laughs> it was trying to to raised 50,000 pounds and it raised 81,000. Uh, you can check it out at um, c64.audio.com slash collections slash project dash Hubbard and there's also a Kickstarter page and we will link to all of that in the description below. And you actually can still participate yes, you can. in the um, not, 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 not in the Kickstarter but in the crowdfunding because yes. on this page c64audio.com slash collection slash project dash Hubbard as H.A. just mentioned, you can still pledge for the stuff, but yes. over this z64audio.com site from... Yeah, um, so if you missed the Kickstarter, if you yeah. missed the Kickstarter, you can still get some of the rewards and whatnot by, by putting in for it now. That's actually something most Kickstarters are doing in this music section, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, actually, a lot of people do that. Sometimes they use Fundra, um, Mega Funder. Some use PayPal. You know, yeah. so cool. Yeah. Very cool. Cool. Yes. Um, oh, so, so hope you enjoyed it. Yes. Until next time, we will see you then. <laughs>